Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Butlers podcast. I am Mike Watkins, and with me, as always, my good friend and business partner, Matt Burke. Hello. And each episode, we try and bring you an intellectually honest discussion about news and events affecting Bitcoin. If you like our content, please like, subscribe, and share. So, Matt, first up, uh, on this episode is the news about Silvergate Bank. This is a bank used by many of the exchanges to do their banking. And uh, the news from Silvergate Bank is they are liquidating their assets and shutting down. So can you tell us more about this, please? Yeah, so it looks like um, Silvergate, since the FTX collapse, Silvergate has had a number of problems, the biggest of which was essentially a run on the bank. Um, and as it turns out, they had, I believe, about $13 billion in deposits, um, but only about a billion and a half in cash um, at, at last report. And in the towards the end of 2022 in December, um, there was over $8 billion withdrawn from the bank. And my take on this is that this is more of a fractional reserve banking issue than it is a a Bitcoin or crypto issue, but essentially you've got Silvergate, which was the primary bank for many crypto exchanges. They were very heavily involved in the stablecoin trade, where if uh, if exchanges needed to issue or burn stablecoins, that would get done through Silvergate. Um, so you know they were essentially a a key player in a lot of the exchange transactions that were going on, but um, the environment towards the end of last year, given um, all of the uncertainty around crypto and the collapse of FTX, uh, just kind of put a put the final nail in the coffin for them. They, uh, I think they lost a billion dollars last year um, yeah. and much less than that. It was, a, you know, compared to 2021, it was a much worse year. So there was already some speculation that they may not make it and it appears that they won't. Okay, so there are, two things here. There's a thing that I know is going to happen. And there's a thing that I don't know what's going to happen. So the thing that I know is going to happen is that they're going to blame all this on crypto and Bitcoin. The reason the bank failed is because crypto is risky and this, you know, it's taking banks out of business and we have to crack down on the scourge as quickly as possible to stop this contagion from spreading. And I think we can expect our, uh, our uh, can I call it our typical politicians to be doing this? I don't know mm -hmm. if you, I think we probably both agree on that. It's sort of, sort of obvious. The thing that I don't know, and I think that's more important and less cynical, is what does this mean? What does this mean for Bitcoin? What does this mean for crypto? My first concern, of course, is Bitcoin. And my concern here is that while they cannot stop Bitcoin, they can impact the on-ramps and off-ramps. Right. And I think we're seeing a good bit of that where there's kind of choking off of mm -hmm. the ability for certain companies to be able to do business as usual through the traditional banking system. Okay. So... What does that mean? Because as we know, Bitcoin and crypto are are global assets. And 
if the United States rejects, let's just say hypothetically, and I don't think this will happen, but let's just say hypothetically that the United States cuts off all banks from interacting with uh, anything having to do with Bitcoin. So it means Coinbase will be shut down. There'll be no exchanges. You cannot buy Bitcoin legally in the United States. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, other countries will take the lead. Right. I mean, I think that's there, there's a short term and a long term outcome here. And I think the short term is that you're going to see some flight offshore um, from the U.S. If it's getting you know much more difficult for the U.S. firms to do business um, as usual with U.S. companies, uh, then you're going to see them look elsewhere because, like you said, you're not going to stop Bitcoin. Um so you have the choice to either you know, embrace it or make it difficult. And right now they seem to be making it somewhat difficult. I think that the other piece of this is that in the long term, um, you know, it could go either way. If there, ha- if there ends up being some more formal, reasonable regulation around how these companies can act and the U.S., government kind of welcomes it a little bit more than they do now, then you could see a lot of that come back and, and, you know, continue to, to thrive here. But I think the more that we see this choking off of the legacy banking system with crypto and Bitcoin, um, it's just going to move, move it elsewhere. Okay. So then my follow-up question to that is, well, then why don't they just choke it off now? What, what's what's with the slow choking? Why not just say, and not officially, because they don't have to do it officially. They can go to, well, let's just say Chase, Jamie Dimon, and say, you know, in their w- a way of saying something without saying something, right? Meaning like, I don't know if it's a great idea for J.P. Morgan to risk its reputation yeah. Uh, nice bank you got there. there. Exactly. Nice bank you got here. Be a shame if something happened to it. Yeah. So, but but this goes on all the time. We can't be naive and think that these things don't happen. Well, I think so, they are happening. But are they? I mean, in in some ways, yes. But in I, I think in other more. Ways, by, I don't know. I think it's more behind the scenes. Um, but I think that right now, what we're seeing my sense of it and I'm far from an insider on any of it. So I don't know, Mm -hmm. but my sense is that there, those conversations are happening coming from this particular administration to some of these bigger companies saying, Mm -hmm. you know, we're trying to figure out what to do here. You, why don't you just slow your roll, do us a favor. It'll work out better for you in the end. If you're not going full speed, well, we're trying to figure out what to do. That would really help us a lot. I could see that those Mm -hmm. types of conversations happening. And I think that they are. Um, So where, you know, but, but there's, there's kind of this inherent conflict because we also know at the same time that these major institutions are investing in this technology and they're training people on how to use it and how to incorporate it and how to use the rails and program around it. And we know Mm -hmm. that, that, that that's something that's happening. So I think, you know, there's this kind of, game of cat and mouse happening where the government is quietly trying to make it more difficult and these institutions are 
trying to do what's, you know, in their own best interest. But at the same time, mm -hmm. I think they also realize that in the long term, you're not really going to ban these things. Um, you know, that horse has left the barn and mm -hmm. it's going to be something that, you know, when that tide eventually turns, they want to be ready for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just thinking through this as we're, we're talking right now, and I know this is something that I've, I've thought through a lot. And I know you and I have discussed it a fair amount, but now that we see this thing happening with Silvergate, maybe that triggered something different. And then also after our uh, fireside chat with Hester Pierce, mm -hmm. one of the big things I got out of that fireside chat is that the government is not this coordinated, single-minded effort to do something, that there are lots of different voices inside the government and people a lot of times don't even know which way to go, right? Mm -hmm. That it's just kind of a chaotic mess. And you know that any organization over a certain size is somewhat of a chaotic mess. And when you have an organization where people really can't be fired and, you know, government's things are notoriously messes. So in, in some ways, if I look at it, it's sort of a caught between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. They know that this is a threat. They know that their power comes from money, right? I mean, come on. If it, it, I, I've only been studying this for a few years. If people have been in this for a long time, surely they had a better like, uh, place to start from. And, and there are people that I have to assume that are in the legacy banking system that are knowledgeable about Bitcoin. And we know this. We heard this once again, bring up Hester Pierce, that sure. we, we know that there are people at Chase that understand it much better than we do. And we know that they sent their programmers down because we had a friend that was in a programming class with them, right? Yeah. So they're not just there just to learn about Bitcoin. They're there to get under the hood. They're learn to understand how it operates. And they sent developers there. So in, in some ways, mm -hmm. they, they know it's a threat to their, I guess for the sake of this discussion, we'll say to their existence. And I, I kind of disagree with that, but they know it's a threat, right? And so mm -hmm. they would naturally want to get rid of the threat. But at the same time, if they use all of their resources to neutralize that threat here it doesn't change things on a global level and then you start dealing with the concept of scarcity mm -hmm. with it being it's going to be the hardest asset in the world in about 400 and something days not many just over 400 days right which will give it double the stock to flow of gold making it technically uh have twice the scarcity of gold. Correct me yep. if I'm wrong here. Twice Roughly correct. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And gold is the most scarce resource on the planet. Yep. Okay. So it'll be the most scarce resource on the planet by a factor of two. Right. In in less, less than a year yeah. and a few or months. about a year. Right. Right. About a year. That's just it. Well, that's coming. That clock is ticking, and so. 
do you really want to to exclude yourself from Bitcoin when it becomes the hardest asset on earth and an unconfiscatable asset um, and an asset that you can send with a mouse click and have uh, a trustless transaction for basically an unlimited amount of money over the internet. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Right. Um, so I just think that they have to balance these two things where it's like, we really want to crush it, but we know it's the future at the same time. So how do we deal with this? No, I think that's right. I think there's a lot of that going on. And I think there's, like I said, there is that inherent conflict that um, on one hand, you want to destroy it or outlaw it. But on the other hand, you recognize the potential value that it has. So what do you do about it? And I don't know. I think we've talked about this on a number of occasions. I don't think we know the answer. And, um, and, and uh, to some extent, it it doesn't matter. Bitcoin is going to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, we've talked about this and I, I love bringing up this idea because I just think it's a really neat idea, which is that uh, Bitcoin was a game launched on the world. Mm -hmm. And this game is going to play out over a very, very, very long period of time. We're talking about, hundred year minimum almost maybe not, many decades yes many 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 decades and it's a very unique interesting game of strategy and the application is something that pays you to put it on your computer to run the app in a way that you make money by plugging a computer into a wall mm-hmm and then it goes into all the other things where it makes this money and it makes a network and a delivery mechanism and all these other things around it. But really, it incentivizes people to keep it running. And then as it starts to extend its tentacles and mature, which takes, you know, Bitcoin's been around now for, what is it? It's in its 14th year, mm -hmm. right? So really 13 years. Um, it's very young. It's very young. It's amazing what it's done with no CEO, no marketing department, no employees over a 13-year period. And now, it's, now that incentive built into the game or the app, whatever you want to call it, I think it's a game, sure. is that it's the most powerful computer network in the world. Mm-hmm. By like a crazy factor, according to Michael Saylor, it's like comparing a mountain to a toaster. Right. Right. Or a grain of rice. Yeah. Grain of rice. <laughs> so, so that incentive built into the game has created this most powerful monetary network in the world. And it's also created the hardest asset on earth. And you basically can't turn this game off. All of the tools that these governments have been used to using to enforce their will for many decades, maybe many centuries, don't work because it's, 
it's it's really whack-a-mole in some ways that even if you shut it down in one country, then it'll just encourage profit-driven people in another country to do Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, that you know, we saw that it, there was such a profound example of that when China banned mining, right? I mean, you immediately saw it just pop up in the United States to an extent it had never before because now the incentive was there to to move it, you know, that to capture that hash rate. So yeah, there are um, the incentive structure of Bitcoin is so on one hand, it's so simple, but it's so at the same time, it's unbelievably complex and brilliant the way that, that it actually keeps itself going simply by existing. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm really glad you brought up China because I think China should be mentioned in this discussion because I think that, it might be one of the better guides that we can look at, right? So China's kind of banned Bitcoin. I don't really know if you can buy Bitcoin. They banned it a bunch of times, right? They banned it. A, yeah. Well, if you keep banning something, it means you never banned it. Um, or your ban didn't work. Either way, you want to look at it. Um, but China kicked the miners out. And there was a enormous amount of hash rate. Do you remember if it was over 50% of the hash rate? It was, it was close. That, yeah. Right. And Bitcoin didn't miss a beat. And a year later, it's got its highest hash rate ever. And I'll also mention Bitcoin's hash rate right now is at its record. All time high. Right. Mm, all time high. Over so, 300x hash. Right. So what that means is that China, who has this much more of an ability to control its population than the United States, basically kicked mining out and you and i know the stat that people don't really talk about which is that a couple months later 20 percent of the hash rate was back in china right so and that's a good thing actually so i just i wonder how many of these central banks and governments and political people and regulators looked at what happened with china and said you know, what do we do? I mean, we we have to figure out a way to live with this beast and keep it under control as much as possible. Like you have to figure out a way to coexist, but uh, just use all of your tools and resources to sort of drag it, drag it down as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And that that's probably the optimal strategy. Well, and, and at the same time, that strategy actually helps the government influence some of these institutions that we we're talking about, because mm -hmm. the more they slow play it, the, the longer, you know, those institutions will have, or the quicker they can catch up when it, you know, when they figure it out, meaning that if it's, if they went hard now to regulate it, it would leave the institutions behind and the institutions don't like that. So that's, so, that's the other dilemma is that what you think chase wants to be left out of digital assets. I'm not buying that. No, I, you think chase wants to be, no, 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 we're chase and we're not going to, we don't permit Bitcoin <laughs> and this is the year 2030. Yeah. So and, and, and I, I wonder how much of a change that next having will have that when you can definitively say that Bitcoin 
is twice as scarce as gold. How that changes things. Well, I also think right. it gives you there, you know, the having is, is a good reference point because I think when you look at the having cycles and you see kind of what's happened to the, I'll call it the industry during that period. I mean, that's one thing that, that, you know, if you look at three years ago where the Bitcoin landscape was compared to where it is now mm -hmm. and then where it'll be another year from mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's, and it is still so early, but at the same time, mm -hmm. the amount of capital that's been put into this space and the improvements in mining and the ability to use it to help stabilize the energy grid and the the increase of the lightning network and you know now the advent of Noster, which is a whole nother technology mm -hmm. um i mean Noster, i've played around with it at all a little bit um i i get it but it is so you know beta stage at best right now mm -hmm. whatever alpha mm -hmm. i don't even know if it's mm -hmm. beta um Nice. You know, it's like, it, it's not even, I would say Proof of concept. Know, yeah. You're basically mm -hmm. at the, uh, at the IRC stage of, of internet, you know, one-on-one -on -one communication, right? It's like the, it's the very, very beginning of a technology. And yeah. so to see where that is four years from now or five years from now, when you get to the next having, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be pretty mind blowing to see what happens over each of those four-year cycles. Mm -hmm. I, I think that you made a great point there, that when you look at all of the development, the infrastructure advancement that we've seen over the past three years, not to mention certain countries uh, and certain jurisdictions adopting it. And I believe yesterday was the uh, one-year anniversary, and I'm going to get the name wrong, Luongo, you know what it is. I'm not sure is what you're talking about. Is that in Switzerland? Oh. Um, I forgot the name exactly. Yeah, I know but, what you're talking about. But regardless, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You're seeing a number of jurisdictions adopting it. You're seeing a number of retailers adopting it. You've seen the Lightning Network be developed, which is – that's the killer app. I, I – I want to bring this up because why not? So I um, I got really, really deep into studying Apple starting back in 2005. I was, I would say, sort of how I uh, have a bit of an obsession with Bitcoin and wanted to get to the as close to the, the bottom of the rabbit hole as possible. I did a similar thing with Apple. And there were times that, I was looking at things that Apple was doing. And I was looking at the stock price being depressed and I was just shaking my head. Like, do people not see what's in front of them? Like, mm -hmm. I don't mean the casual guy on the street seeing and understanding what's in front of them. I'm like, they're these analysts that are paid a lot of money each year to do in their full time. What I just do in my spare time for fun. Do they not see what's right in front of them. And I just remember thinking like, I don't get it. And then you'd see pundits go on TV and they would say things. You say, I'm like, do you just not see what's in front of you? Like, this is so clear. And they didn't. And 
I feel like I'm watching a rerun of that with the Lightning Network. That it's, do you not see what's in front of you? This is well, something special. Yeah, and and that, I think a lot of that is, I, I don't want to call it, maybe it is political, but I think that there's also, you know, there's this level of dismissiveness that um, that I think you hear a lot in, in public forums where people are not really in general willing to acknowledge any of it what you know they because it's not generally accepted yet it's not you know clearly the government is not heavily in favor of it um they may not be heavily against it at this point but they're also not it's not like they're promoting it so i think that people are treading lightly and walking on eggshells because there's just a lot of uncertainty around mm. what the regulatory framework is going to look like. And so I think that's some of it. I think some of it is just a lack of understanding. I mean, you know, if you ask the average person, what does the layer two of Bitcoin mean, then they're going to say, huh? You know, and so I, I think there's just, it's just so young and early in its development that it's just not on a lot of people's radar. But at the same time, I think that, you, that, a lot of these institutions and are in this level of investment happening. Sorry, Matt, you broke up there. Would you mind repeating that, please? Oh, I, I said that I, that you've got investors and institutions that are seeing some of this and do realize that you know mm -hmm. this is just the beginning, and so. That's why they're putting a lot of money into this space. Mm -hmm. And that's where we, we we have that rock and a hard place, which is that the institutions, I refuse to believe, I just refuse to believe, although anything is possible, that JP Morgan doesn't get this. That someone, that they can bring in anyone, they can watch Michael Saylor on YouTube if they want. Right. Right, they have resources. They can read the Bitcoin standard. They can read a lot of books on Bitcoin. They can listen to a lot of podcasts. They should listen to our podcast. They would learn some things, maybe. Um, Arguably, but but I, I would hope that they wouldn't. I would hope they would listen to him and be like, "Yeah, there's no, nothing that we don't know that we got there," <laughs> and, and would be advising them. And that's that's on one side of it. And then, of course, you've got the regulators on the other side. Although maybe the strategy is to just keep the waters murky for as long as possible. Put out some things in certain directions to make people guess one way or another, but just don't really issue regulation. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't we have regulation on this? Digital assets have been around long enough for the government to issue something on it right i mean what what what's taking so long to figure this out well i think part of it is a, a big part of it is just that we have a government that operates on gridlock so it's hard what, to get things what do you mean oh, meaning just... that there are there are competing factions of people that either are there are a lot of people who support Bitcoin and other digital assets. There are other people who are against it, but the majority of people have no idea. And mm -hmm. so right, right. it makes it very difficult for anything to happen because you might have a small minority of people on either side. Those mm -hmm. that 
that are that understand it. You get people that understand it and are for or against it. So maybe forget whether they understand it. You have a small minority of people that are actually for or against it and a large majority of people who are unsure and uneducated. And so they're not going to take the limited amount of political capital they have and spend it on something they don't understand or care about. Okay, so hold that thought for a second and let us talk about what what's on the horizon. Because what's on the horizon is going to impact this. And what's on the horizon is the CBDC, the mm -hmm. Central Bank Digital Currency. And I know that the U.S. government and other world governments are viewing the CBDC as their alternative to Bitcoin and other crypto. And I don't know if that's just for the sake of press, right? But I could see that by some of these bureaucrats who really don't understand anything, thinking, well, people like Bitcoin because it's digital, so we'll make our digital currency what we're not going to tell them is that we can control everything. Right. They that do. it's a we massive have, surveillance you know, tool. Yeah. It's yeah. that, that it's uh, the end of their freedom. We're not going to tell them that, but we're going to offer them something digital. And these people are rubes. They're suckers. We're going to put everyone in a government, like everyone, uh, government uh, aid programs on there. So your Medicare will be on there. Your food stamps will be on there. Your social security will be on there. You know, they'll, they'll direct people through there because mm -hmm. they can. And those people have no choice, but there's a funny thing in people where if someone thinks that you're going to take their money away, not, not even like a high degree of certainty, but if someone thinks it's like a 10% chance you're going to take their money away, they lose their mind. Sure. They lose their mind. I think I think it's biological. I think it's wired into us that when we evolve, resources were scarce. And if uh, if you were fortunate enough to get resources for your tribe, um, if someone came or an animal tried to take those resources, you would defend those resources yeah i so, mean there's that is a, that's a I mean, that's a primal instinct i mean primal, look, you know exactly. use the same example of of you know when you gave my dog a bone that time and then tried to take it from him mm -hmm. yeah you know yeah. it's it's the same it's the same exact genetic instinct mm -hmm. and it's that's fine but i think that this is going to play a role here because i've my thesis for a while has been that People aren't going to put 100 hours into learning what Bitcoin really is. They're just going to read a blurb here or there. So be it. But they can understand that's the money that no one can take away from you. Right. That you they have the money that can be taken away in all kinds of ways because, you know, the government can't, can't resist themselves. They're going to do it. Um, and people are going to tell them they can do it. And people may not want to listen to you about your politics or shows you've seen on Netflix. But if you tell someone that someone might be able to take their money, you're going to get their attention. 
Absolutely. And um, and then people, you know, there'll be a, a crazy mass exodus. And we also have seen the CBDC tried in Nigeria where it's been a huge failure. Failed miserably. And miserably. I think that, and that's the thing, look, there's, there are two things. One is that, you know, um, it may, it may sound trite to say that everything is good for Bitcoin, but, you know, I think there's good evidence that most things are good for Bitcoin. Um, and so I think that this, I think that the CBDC is actually potentially a catalyst to drive mass adoption of Bitcoin, just to your point that when you have somebody faced with the idea that their money is now um, being controlled or can be limited or curtailed by the government on a whim or based on, you know, social credit scoring type of approach, whatever it is, um, you're going to get a lot of people not okay with that and it's not going to go well. Right. And so you mix that in with what you were saying of, as far as the government dragging its feet and keeping everything kind of murky and then putting pressure on companies to slow their roll a bit mixed with the rollout of CBDC. And it can happen in other countries too. Keep in mind, you know, if it, if they release a CBDC in France and it's, you know, epically awful and totalitarian, then the news will travel. Sure. So, but you, what I'm saying is that we may see a number of converging events 14 to 24 months from now, right? Starting with a halving. Mm-hmm. And if we see a, any kind of rollout of CBDC, and it will happen because they can't can't resist, and they have to try, they have to try sure. and fail. They're not just going to give up. Um, and you never know how how much pressure they can put on their citizens. I think right. And one thing you are seeing, and and this is this will kind of lead us into our our next topic, which is that they're also using you know, the climate change hysteria to, to at a minimum to, you know, drive people away in terms of wanting to find out more about Bitcoin. Cause mm -hmm. a lot of what people, the average person just hears is, Oh, it's really bad for the environment. Why would you want money? That's really bad for the environment. And so I think that's just another tool in, in the kit of the government to, um, to help kind of keep the uh, the FUD factor at, at a maximum. Yeah, and it's they're using a lot of tools. I, I, you know, one of the big things for us that we've been talking about here for a good while, and I think we were some of the early people on this, is that Bitcoin is good for energy. Bitcoin is good for the for the people that produce natural gas that it can capture methane fumes as they come out of that process so you have two options you can let methane fumes go in the air or you can capture them run a motor with it and run a bunch of computers right so to the extent and we're not going to debate this part of it here but to the extent that it is a good idea to limit the amount of hydrocarbons going into the atmosphere you cannot argue that using Bitcoin mining 
to capture flared methane, that's absolutely a way to reduce the amount of carbon emissions. Now, whether or not that affects anything, I don't, you know, we're not, that's not the, the point, but it's been made clear that, you know, reducing carbon emissions is a noble goal. And we can say with certainty that Bitcoin allows that to happen. Okay, here's how I can prove it's good. If I were to go to the natural gas uh, drillers and say, I've got a product for you, it will capture all the methane that's being emitted from your operation. Being flared. Being flared, sorry. And um, it'll capture it all, won't go into the atmosphere, and it's not going to cost you a dime. They would all say, great. I think every regulator would be happy with that. Great. You're going to capture fumes uh, that uh, that we don't want in the atmosphere. And it's not going to cost us any money. If you don't need a grant, you don't need anything. No one has to pay a dime. I think they would all say, great. Now, when you tell them that that does exist and it's called Bitcoin and here's the even better thing, uh, it'll pay you money. Right. Not only will you will you capture the emissions, but you're gonna we're gonna pay you to do it. Well, to be fair, you have to make an investment in order to be able to do that. So yes, over time, it's it's neutral or profitable, um, most likely profitable. But the reality is that there is an ex, there's an expenditure that has to happen in order to realize that um, that ability, but. But the expenditure, you know, but it's a quick is, payback. Is yeah. is very small for these operations. You know, if you're, you know, if you're drilling for natural gas, uh, the cost of a they use, a, like I don't know what the back of an eighteen wheeler is called. A shipping container. Shipping container. Yeah, they 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 put these computers in a shipping container. It's not a. They're not spending a lot on the equipment, right? Yeah, and it's um, mobile. They move it from place to place. They just Correct. sit on this thing and they're just in a bunch of racks. But I'm saying it's a small expenditure. And even if it's, even if they don't get their money back from it and, that, and that's a sunk cost, uh, I don't think anyone would complain that they're keeping the air cleaner. I know I wouldn't. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's segue into the, into the next clip that we're, that we're going to show. Um, this is about a five minute video and we'll, we'll pause it at some point, but this was, um, Senator Cynthia Lummis from Wyoming, uh, in a hearing about crypto energy and Rob Altenberg is the person she's talking to. He is a director at Penn future energy center. Basically, uh, he's, what would you say? He's like the head of a think tank that studies climate change and environmental impact of, of different different industries um so why don't we uh go ahead and play the first couple minutes of that clip mm -hmm. and then we can uh i'll pause it and we can we can chat about it give me one second here i'll get that up all right here we go first question is for mr altenberg what does a what does a digital asset mining operation look like? I mean, are there shovels digging in the ground? 
uh, what does it what does it look like? Uh, it depends where at the location, though. The mining sites that are uh, being placed that are fracked gas wells, they're essentially uh, semi-trailers that have methane gas power generators that are plugged into the well and big uh, shipping containers full of racks of uh, Bitcoin miners. Okay, and a Bitcoin miner is actually a computer. Yeah, it's about the size of a toaster and it uses three times the energy of a house. Okay, so there is a, a, a bunch so they run cooler, they can be air-cooled, they can be water-cooled, but it's basically just a computer. Yes. So um, is that computer that's mining Bitcoin directly emitting pollutants? No, it's, it's, it's energy source. It's electric source is what's emitting. Okay. So now let's take an EV charging station. Um, if that EV charging station is powered by electricity from natural gas or coal, shouldn't it also have the same monitoring that is being requested by this bill? I, I think the issue is, is looking at how efficiency is measured. Um, it's all sources of electricity, whether it's the lights or the speaker system here, are going to use electricity and, use a, and, and produce a certain amount of work for that electricity. The issue with Bitcoin and proof-of-work cryptocurrency is the work that we are doing is not actually necessary to have cryptocurrency or to have blockchain technology. Okay. okay. All right, so what do you have to say about that? I mean, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's the same silly argument for people that don't understand anything and don't understand why proof of work is critical. And I don't just think proof of work is important for this. I think proof of work is important for anything in life. And that there are no shortcuts and the so much of the magic is in proof of work and is needed. And you understand how real money is created that he didn't explain why. Right. He just said it's not needed. Okay. It's not needed. Yeah. It's not which... needed. Okay. That's an opinion. So, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's this, he's a, he's a weasel. <laughs> right. He he definitely seemed to be squirming a little bit at some of those questions. And I mm -hmm. think he realized once she went down that road of comparing it to an electric vehicle charging station, which, you know, according to the, uh, the current narrative, electric vehicles are, you know, the future of transportation that's going to save us all from from climate doom. And, you know, when you break it down that way, though, and you say that, well, Bitcoin mining is really bad for the environment because it uses so much energy that's not necessary. Um, and then you compare it to an electrical vehicle, electric vehicle charging station that's using essentially the same, if not much less clean sources of energy. I mean, most of these, from what I understand, most of these charging stations around the country are absolutely running off of hydrocarbon based fuel, not, you know, sustainable fuels or renewables. And, 
and so it's kind of ridiculous to uh, to say that one is an efficient use of energy and one is an inefficient use of energy. And and so you know, the fundamental thing that I have an issue with here is that I would argue that it's nobody's it's not the government's business to determine what is or isn't an efficient use of energy. Now I get that you have energy guidelines for, uh, for different electronics and vehicles and all of that kind of stuff, but putting guidelines that, that disclose what the energy use or footprint is of a particular piece of equipment is very different than saying that, we shouldn't be using energy for X, regardless of what X is. Um, that's really for the for the market to decide, in my opinion. I agree, and it's very, very dangerous for a government to determine what energy can and cannot be used for. It's just not a good idea. Yeah, and, and I, I think you you know, look, we, we'll see if this get to what extent this gets challenged legally. But I, I think you've got a real you've got a first amendment issue here, which is that if you have the ability to buy a product in this case, electricity, then unless you're using it for something that is illegal, um, it really shouldn't be the, the place of the government to tell you what you can use that energy for. Well, let's also not forget the deals that Bitcoin miners can make with the energy providers. Well, let's because, hold that one until we get yeah, to the yeah. into the so, next section. So, yeah. so, so that whole, I mean, it's just it's a charade. Yeah, it's and it's cherry picking, right? It's it's performance art a bit, right? That's not a serious thing. No. Not at all. Um, I, I'm going to go and and play the the next half of this mm -hmm. clip because I thought uh, there were some other some other good lines of questioning there. Um, let me pull that back up. Okay, let's talk about gold. If you're if you're where does gold come from? It's mined. It's mined. Okay. Um, is is energy expended in pr producing gold? Yes. Okay. Um, is gold absolutely essential? For certain technologies, it is. Um, is it Congress's job to decide whether an energy use is worthwhile or not? I mean, surely you've heard that uh, Bitcoin is digital gold because it is limited to 21 million Bitcoin ever to be mined. Uh, it is permissionless, uh, and uh, which means you don't have to rely on a third party or trusted third party to do transactions in it or to hold it. It is a store of value, and that is commonly agreed to. Okay, so you've got gold, it's a store of value. You've got Bitcoin, it's a store of value. They both consume energy to produce. Now, is it Congress's role to say gold is a more worthwhile use of energy than Bitcoin? 
there is a long history of that very thing. We have energy efficiency standards for appliances. We've got CAFE standards for vehicles. And for most uh, air pollution, for most new air pollution sources, there's legal requirements that before they operate, they install the best available technology to reduce the pollution. So may, we do make those decisions every day. So we're still mining coal in this country. We're still producing uh, natural gas, which is, and we have the cleanest burning natural gas uh, in probably the world here in the United States and produce it in the most environmentally sound manner. But it's a hydrocarbon. Um, so if my car is uh, oil consuming or natural gas consuming, uh, is it a less worthy use of energy than energy that comes from coal and natural gas, but is converted to electricity for an EV? Well, there are for yeah using using vehicles using all, our entire transportation network requires a certain amount of energy, and there are uh, economic. Uh, benefits that we get from that transportation network. Uh, I, got, I have one, I have, and my time's about up, so thank you. I have a question for uh, Ms. Detlinger. Do you view digital asset mining operations as a negative for the power sector? I certainly don't speak for the entire power sector, but uh, within the state of Nebraska, we've actually seen benefits. We have not seen the drawbacks that have been mentioned during the hearing today. Um, and most of those have just been managed locally, whether by the municipality, by the county, or by the Nebraska Department of Environment. All right. So, you know, the gold mining analogy, um, we, and we've talked about this as well, is that you know, you, there are a lot of parallels to be drawn there. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to get gold out of the ground. Um, there's not really any other way to do it um, other than to take the equipment and the people and the effort necessary to, to mine it. Um, you know, so I thought that was a really good question is what, at what point does the government have the, um, authority to say, well, this is a good use of energy and this is a bad use of energy. I mean, they, they should, it's a really dangerous thing to get involved with that. And, and by the way, one, one quick thing I'll mention there is that, you know, where she didn't drill, drill him too hard on this answer, but she asked him, you know, what gold's use was um, in terms of industrial applications and his response was something like, you know, that it was, it was necessary for industrial applications. The reality is that gold, the percentage of gold that's actually used for something other than money is minuscule. Um, a small fraction of the gold that exists, you know, out, above ground today um, would would cover the industrial needs for for gold mm -hmm. many 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 times over the almost the entire value of gold is you know what you would call a monetary premium meaning that it's got value because it's good money so from that standpoint you can even draw the conclude the comparison further that I mean Bitcoin you 
it, it, you know, certainly at this point is that if it has a premium, it's almost all monetary premium. You can't, mm -hmm. you know, you can't use uh, Bitcoin to make an electronic circuit run faster like you can with gold. So, um, so they kind of brush that part off to the side, but, but from that standpoint, it is a good comparison. Um, and so I think, you know, his answer was really just a bunch of crap, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's, I give him credit for a polished answer. You know, he gave the answer he's supposed to give in that situation. He did his job. You aren't going to get him to admit anything. He shifted. If you notice, he didn't really answer any of the questions. Right. Um, or if he did, it was a fairly short response. It was pretty vague in an opinion in one situation. So, I, you know, it's, this is just a, a charade to me. And actually looking at it now after we've had this sort of a, a more deep Bitcoin discussion, um, you know, this is, this is, it's interesting I, when you well, see oh, the other thing on and that there's someone defending Bitcoin, but what it's. The, we'll, we'll see what happens because there's a there are a lot of moving parts right now, and there are a lot of powerful forces trying to do everything they can to shut down Bitcoin. Yeah, and, and so the one Death thing I'll say, thousand paper cuts. Yeah, almost. and so Senator Lummis is a gift to all of us. She's you know she clearly understands it. She gets it. She's gone way down the rabbit hole. Um, and I think she's asking, asking the right questions in the right way so that people who are listening to that can, can actually think about some of these things rationally. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But the, the other thing that, um, that, that he said was, you know, that I thought was the key was that proof of work mining is not necessary for crypto or blockchains to work. And that is technically a correct answer. But what he doesn't say is that proof of work is the only way to keep the network completely decentralized, completely trustless, without giving any single holder of that asset an advantage over anyone else. And, you know, if you want to know why proof of work is preferable to proof of stake in that context, it's because with proof of stake, all you have to do to have more influence is to have more money. And that's the system that exists today. Mm -hmm. And you get this kind of, you know, Cantillon effect where uh, the people who are in these proof of stake networks that have um, large numbers of coins allocated to them before they ever are allocated to the public just is a recipe for corruption and failure. And mm -hmm. Bitcoin, you can't do that. You're going to issue, you know, Bitcoin every 10 minutes and you can't make it go faster. You can't make it go slower. All you can do is use the energy to, you know, hope and get a piece of, of one of those blocks. Yeah. But tell me if you agree with this statement. Bitcoin will be up and running five years from today. Yes, I agree. What's your level of certainty on that? 
Um, very high. I mean, black I was, swan events, you never know. I mean, there's who knows there. We should know there's always something that you may not consider, but I will tell you that Bitcoin goes down. I got bigger problems. Yeah. It's almost like you asking me, what are the chances that the internet is still working in five years? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's getting into that realm. Yeah, exactly. And what happens five years when today where Bitcoin scarcity really starts to become evident, right? That there's four times more gold on earth than there is Bitcoin. And of course, when we go four years out from there, there'll, there'll be eight times again. more right. gold on earth than there is Bitcoin. But I, I, I kind of want to look past some of the noise and just try to well, pay attention to it, of course. But then I like to look out and say like, okay, if we just realize this is just the noise of the day and we look out into the future and we look five years ahead and we try to figure out what things we're certain about and what things we're you know, uncertain about. And we have different degrees of certainty for different things. But so the, so the network being up is a super high level of certainty. And the scarcity, if the network is up, is essentially guaranteed. So you, you also would have had Bitcoin around for five more years. I can only imagine how much development is going to happen and adoption, et cetera, over the next five years. Mm -hmm. So what does that world look like? I understand that people now are you know, talking about Silvergate Bank and Silvergate Bank will be long forgotten. It'll be the answer on Jeopardy. That's right. about how often people will think about it. But you will have Bitcoin with this really, really crazy hash rate. I mean, I'm assuming. I mean, I can only imagine what the hash rate would be in five years. Yeah. By the way, I read a I read a thing today that about hash rate because um, I know we always like to talk about the fact that it's the world's most computer, most powerful computer network. Um, I saw a thing that the the current estimate of the number of grains of sand on the planet is whatever the number is, um, the equivalent is that the Bitcoin network is performing as many calculations as there are grains of sand on the planet every 24 seconds. And it's like seven and a half septillion grains of sand. And that's for point. now. Then it'll that's be down, for now. Next time right. we discuss it, it might be down to six seconds. It's, it's 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 just these are numbers that people can't comprehend. Yeah. Um, and how many how do they know how many grains of sand are? On it's the a uh, it's a rough estimate, or sure. maybe not rough, but it's an estimate. They, they didn't have a guy go count them. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I'm just when I see this stuff, I like I said, I just like to look past it and say, where are we, and what does this part look like? Because it, it, that day is coming. And it's, it's, it's going to be a very weird ride, I think, starting at the next halving. It's already a weird ride right now. I mean, this is these are crazy times. Um, and 
I saw a tweet today. I forgot where it was from, but it was listing out all the bad things that happened to Bitcoin and crypto this year, but mm -hmm. really could just care about Bitcoin. And uh, it's had a horrible, <laughs> horrible, 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 horrible uh, 2000 and basically had a, I think, a pretty horrible year and a half. But, but 2022 yeah. was a very, very bad year starting about June. Mm -hmm. when you had all these collapses. So one of the questions is, well, why? Why is it still, why hasn't it lost more value? I mean, I think it, it goes to, it speaks a lot to what Bitcoin is and that the people that are, that are buying it you know, may have some level of understanding of what it is and therefore are willing to pay for it. And I think that that's, you know, the reason you haven't seen it really, uh, you know, take a dive given everything that's happened is because of all of the things that are being built around it and all the investment that's going into that space um, and all of the kind of, you know, market makers that are able to actually articulate what it is and, and get people interested in it. I had a really interesting thought and I just forgot it. <laughs> Well, as far as the uh, energy use, you wanna you wanna go you wanna go to the next clip, and uh, maybe you can you can gather your your thought again when. Sure. But yeah, so the next clip um, was a panel that had the uh, the is it the head or the former head of ERCOT, which is the um, the Texas Energy uh, Council, um, talking about Bitcoin mining. So I'll. Uh, I'll go ahead and pull that up. So for many years, ERCOT was, had been looking for loads of scale that could really respond in a demand responsive way that could help us balance our grid. Back in 2015, you may remember, we started the process of setting up loads in SCID. It was through, I think, about 2016 or 2017. No one showed up at first. There just wasn't any loads that, uh, of scale that could really help us in that market. But it's here now, and it's a great thing for helping us to balance the grid, helping us to manage all of our resources. Uh, the, the Bitcoin has the nature of really turning down when prices begin to rise in a way that we can give that power back to other consumers. And at the same time, as we bring more and more renewables into the state, it becomes a driver of more renewables. Because right now, if we bring in all the renewables that are signed up to want to come to our state, there will be a significant depression of pricing during the day. By having Bitcoin there to assist and to stabilize those prices throughout the day, it's going to drive more renewables into our system. And that's good for Texas. Uh, what, what that's a great clip. Yeah, I mean, it's a good, uh, definitely a good summary of, of what we've talked about a lot on this show mm -hmm. as far as how the, um, the energy grid can really benefit from Bitcoin mining.
Yeah, it's uh, you know the the energy companies like this because they're selling more energy. Yeah, it's a it's an additional revenue right. stream. Um, it helps them, you know, sell energy when people want it, as opposed to not being able to sell energy when people want it. And it, and by the way, the, you know, this was the end of the prior clip with Senator Lummis was her asking somebody from Nebraska if they view Bitcoin mining, you know, as a, uh, as a positive or negative to the energy infrastructure. And she was clear that, you know, we view it as a positive. So there are, there are many uh, jurisdictions that are, I think, warming up to this idea. And as I've said, you're going to see this happen more at the state and local level in a bigger way then you're going to see it happen at the national level. I personally think this is going to be huge. I mean, you never know what will be, you know, how certain powerful forces will push back on it. But this is really a no brainer for the energy companies. They sell more energy. That's good. They have the ability to turn off a chunk of that energy they're selling when they need to. It gives them this flexibility. So it gives them more revenue, more flexibility. It's it's a no-brainer. It's really good for everybody. And because of that, you'll hopefully see it spread very, very rapidly over the next four years. Mm-hmm. And I did remember my thought on the other part. We'll say it quick before you forget it again. Oh, no, I've, <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. But... I, I think it's about 70%, 78% of Bitcoin is being held by long-term holders right mm-hmm. now. Do you know what the stat is off the top of your um, head? No, but I know it's, that sounds about right. I about know, that right. Okay. Yeah. And I know it's been going up and it was, you know, it's, right. it's so, over two thirds. Yeah. So let's say that go, give me an amount that you think that might go up each year. Just any amount. I mean... I could see you it. You might see it not go. You might say that 78% is the top. But I, I'm i assuming that the people who get it, get it, and, and are in it for the long term. Which I could is see what, that getting up to 90% of the holders are, okay. holding, are sitting on sure. it. Sure. So would you say like a 3% increase each year is pretty reasonable? Or would you yeah, probably. three? Okay. I was going to say five. Yeah. Say five. You want to just say four to meet in the middle? Sure. Okay, so after year one, you're at eighty two percent. After year two, you're eighty six percent, and after year three, you're at ninety. So even if we use different math, we're getting into the high eighties, nineties. Well, now you have this asset where the people that own it aren't really selling it, right? Only ten percent of it's out there, and over time, if more people get it and understand what it is you could see this long-term holder number going higher and higher and higher. I mean, in theory, it could be at 99%, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I've thought about this in the past and, and I have some concerns about that that may or may not be reasonable, which is that if it gets to the point where nobody wants to sell it, then what does that do to the utility of it overall? Um, or does that just enable more layers to be built on top of it because that base layer isn't moving? Well, we used a linear thing here and it doesn't really work that way because as the price moves up, some of those long-term holders have other 
agendas. Yeah. Right? Oh, plus there's also, so, there's a churn factor too, right? Meaning right. That, that people that are long-term holders, be, you know, sell their Bitcoin, whereas other people become long-term holders because now they right. held it long enough. So. Right. Right. So as the price moves up, but there's always price gets high enough. Everything is a price. There's always sellers always. But my point on this is if we're talking about this five-year time horizon, that you're likely to see that number. I would say we could see that number hit 90. And that's a crazy, crazy high number. Yeah. Well, when I mean, you you're taking the- a very scarce, taking a very, very scarce thing and saying only 10% of the people want to sell it. Well, look even, you know, what percentage of Bitcoin is available on an exchange right now. I mean, there, you know, we've seen Bitcoin coming off of exchanges for quite some time where, you know, and so if people are taking it, taking away their ability to, you know, buy and sell it on a, on a public exchange, what does that actually say for, you know, for how easy it's going to be to get it in the future. Mm-hmm. I there's just no, did some. Okay. Yeah. No, I was going to say that if there's, you know, if the amount of Bitcoin across all exchanges goes down at some point, it's going to be a lot harder to, to buy it without, you know, the only thing that can happen is the price will go up. Mm. And that's been one of our theories for, for a long time that the amount on the exchange is just going to be chewed up. And right now, <laughs> Uh, I just did some quick math, and I think it's about 13% of the available Bitcoin are on the exchanges. Mm-hmm. Which is still pretty low. Yeah. It is low, right? That's that's 87%. Right. So while these people are bickering over whether the government should get involved in telling you how to use energy or whether proof of stake is all that you need. I I think parts of that are rendered irrelevant by some of the bigger macro things that are going on. And I also wonder where you have this guy from the energy industry that these um, energy producers don't want to sell more energy and create a more flexible grid. And then you also heard the guy from Texas saying, okay, fine, it'll bring in more renewables. And I think that's great too. I think Mm -hmm. as much Bitcoin that can be running on renewables, the better. So for a week where it didn't really seem like there was a lot of news, there was actually some really interesting things going on. I'm sorry, I lost you there for a minute. Oh, I just said for a week that it didn't really seem like there was any significant news. There were actually some really interesting things going on. Yeah. Particularly surrounding um, energy. The one last thing, yeah, the one last thing, which we won't get into in too much depth, but there uh, there was a, a hearing in the case between Grayscale and the SEC. Um, and the one thing I thought was interesting about this is that the judge, um, Judge Rao, I believe is her name, um, mm-hmm. is one of it's a I believe it's a three judge panel um, reviewing this case. And one thing I thought was interesting was she had some some really good understanding of kind of the the fundamental argument at play, and also really seemed to 
be pressing the SEC to explain, you know, why they are making such a distinction between a future ETF versus a spot. And, um, and so my hope there is that at a minimum, you've got a judge that has some understanding of the issues and can, you know, push the parties to, to explain them, explain their side. Um, but it seemed like the SEC wasn't, wasn't really thrilled about, about how that went for them. Right. They, they, the judge, I think another judge that was a little bit hostile to the SEC also, but you know, in these things, I think you have to wait and see how it plays out. I don't like to read the tea leaves on the stuff. It's absolutely doesn't sort of a waste of energy, but interesting nonetheless. And, and uh, I love to see how they press the SEC on the difference between a spot ETF and a futures ETF. And uh, they said, well, the spot ETF is easier to manipulate. And one of the judges came back and said, what, but if you manipulate the spot price, aren't you also manipulating the futures price? Right. Like how can you separate one from the others? And that, which is kind of a no brainer argument. Yeah, um, I thought, and, that, and was... that could be an unexpected win. By the way, uh, if if GBTC is allowed to make a spot ETF and other people allowed to make spot ETFs, that that could be a huge win out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, I agree. All right, anything else? Nope. Me neither. Well, I will uh, tell everybody where to find us. Uh, on the our website btcbutlers.com uh, we're on twitter at btcbutlers you can email us info at btcbutlers.com um, you can dm us on twitter you can comment on youtube like mike said in the beginning if you enjoy this content please like it subscribe tell your friends feel free to send us questions add comments on youtube we will be happy to address and discuss anything that that is of interest. And lastly, if you are looking to implement best practices as a Bitcoin owner, uh, whether that's buying Bitcoin, storing Bitcoin, setting up an inheritance plan for your Bitcoin, running your own node, uh, Bitcoin Butlers is ready and able to help you. So reach out to us and we'd be glad to help. Thank you, Matt. All right. See you next time.